0: head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. My name is Thomas Frank, and this is the show that helps you become a more effective student. We talk about study tips, ways to get internships and jobs, ways to master your money, pay off your debt, and all sorts of other stuff on this show. And to be quite honest, I just want to ramble a little bit about something that's been on my mind before we get into today's topic, because I've been thinking about, I don't know, maybe maybe you can agree with this, or you've had something in your life that uh, this kind of like meshes with you. Um, getting... From zero percent to like 80 or 90 percent in any sort of skill in life is so much easier than getting from that 80 to 90 percent point to nearing perfection. I don't think perfection is ever really attainable, there's always something you can improve. But, um, instead of perfection, let's use the word professional level. Getting from amateur enthusiast level to professional level is so much harder, and there's so many more fiddly details and just weird things that you have to figure out how to deal with than uh, there are when you're getting from zero to the point at which most people could not do what it is you're doing, or or at least don't know how to do what it is you're doing. Podcasting is a perfect example, because I remember... Uh, when I started the show, I was listening to a friend of mine, Pat Flynn. He has a he has a podcast about building online businesses, which is what I'm doing. So I listen to people who know what they're talking about. And he sounds really good on his podcast. And he has this really awesome tutorial where he goes through the process of building a podcast. And he recommends different gear. And going through his six video, I think it was, I think it was like six videos, uh, tutorial took me from like zero to having a podcast on iTunes on the site, sounding pretty okay in a day. I had to wait for the microphone to show up. Once the microphone showed up, I remember recording it and getting it online in one day, within a 24-hour period. And I was using a Blue Yeti microphone, which I still own and which only costs about $100. And uh, you can get really good sound out of it. In fact, I'm convinced that you can get even better sound out of it than I was ever able to achieve because I'm listening to some more podcasts lately, and there's one called Cortex, which is just basically a conversation about nerdy productivity and weird idiosyncrasies in the way that CGP Grey works, and he's an amazing YouTuber if you haven't seen him, Um, and I believe he's still using a Blue Yeti, and he sounds great, but eventually I upgraded to this new system, which is using a Shure SM7B microphone. That is the microphone that Michael Jackson actually recorded Thriller on, so really good high-quality microphone. It's going with an XLR cable, none of this USB stuff anymore, into a ridiculously complicated mixing board. That's going into a USB sound card, which feeds into my computer, and I also have a backup recorder. So there's all this stuff, right? There's just all this stuff. And listening to my recordings the past few episodes, I've been noticing, like, just little tiny things that I'm not satisfied with, and they're so tough to figure out how to fix. For one, like, I've been noticing this little hiss um, electrical hiss. And I, through like hours of research, I finally figured out that high end audio is very susceptible to the quality of the power that's coming out of the outlet. And uh, if you don't have like clean power, as they call it, coming out of your outlets, you're going to get this interference. So I have had to now purchase this power conditioner, which essentially cleans the power and, and makes it. Uh, I don't really know, I'm not familiar with electrical engineering, but it makes the power close to the level with uh with fewer fluctuations in the power levels and the high-end audio gear likes that pretty much. So I had to buy that and then I realized that this mixing board has multiple audio channels. And I didn't realize that even though there's nothing plugged in to some of these audio channels, if you don't mute them, they contribute to the hiss on the podcast. So <laughs> I've been recording all these episodes with like little tiny things missing that were that were keeping me from getting from that 80 to 90% point to the professional uh, pen uh, pedestal. That's, that's the word, pedestal that I would like to get to. And you know what? And that takes longer. It takes longer to figure those little tiny niggly things out. Just little tiny things. It takes longer to figure those out than it does to simply get from beginner to intermediate or amateur enthusiast, as we said. So uh, I just kind of wanted to ramble about podcasting tech a little bit. But maybe this, re- this applies to something in your life as well. Maybe you're trying to learn a skill and you're looking at the people who are really, really good at that skill. Just know that they are at professional level, but they likely got to that amateur enthusiast level very quickly. You know, maybe not, maybe not quickly in terms of individual days, but in terms of how long it is they've been doing that. It probably wasn't too incredibly long before they got to a point at which you would consider yourself very good if you were able to get to it. You know, as long as you can apply yourself and do some practice daily to learn how to get there, you're gonna get there relatively soon. It's a long haul from then on to get to professional level. So don't worry yourself too much about it taking forever to even get halfway to where they are. Because you could probably, with some deliberate practice, get to 80% of where they are. In fact, uh, I did a video for a channel called How to Adult on skill acquisition, and part of that video is based on a book called The First 20 Hours by Josh Kaufman, same guy who wrote The Personal MBA, which I absolutely love. It's amazing. It's probably the best intro to business book that I've ever read. It introduces business concepts. I think everyone should read it because everyone is going to be involved in business somehow if they are working for a company or starting a company. But anyway, he talks about skill acquisition and how you can kind of build that 80% bulk of any skill within 20 hours of deliberate practice. So put your 20 hours in and then worry about all the little tiny details that get you to professional level after you put those 20 hours in. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Let's get into the real topic of today's episode and that's Q&A, my friends. I haven't done the Q&A episode in quite some time and the reason for that was I wanted to do Q&A back in the day with my roommate, my friend Martin, and we basically play video games. Maybe you've listened to some of those episodes, and they were fun, but they just don't make sense with our schedules anymore, and I've kind of replaced that with occasionally streaming on YouTube and answering questions there, which is fun. Um, This going out on Monday, I will have done a live stream with a couple of YouTubers from the UK, Simon Clark and Jamie Miles. And uh, that will be the next episode of this podcast. I'll be replaying the audio of that stream for you guys. So streaming is fun, but occasionally I want to start doing Q&A episodes again. They might be singular episodes without a co-host. But I get a lot of questions via email, and it's getting to the point where I can't handle my email. So instead of um, trying to just work harder, which I have realized doesn't work because there are a million things I should work harder at, I'm going to work a bit smarter I'm going to pack my answers to these questions into a podcast episode, which I already have to do, and then hopefully more than just the person who emailed me that question can benefit from the answer, and yeah, so that's what we're going to do, and um, I'm going to do these semi-regularly, I'm not going to set a schedule for them anymore, but whenever it fits my fancy and there are questions that should be answered, you're going to get a Q&A episode as something in between the regularly scheduled guest episodes and monologue episodes, where I act like Syndrome from The Incredibles. You dog, you caught me monologuing. Anyway, if you want to get show notes for this episode, I'll probably link some resources that I talk about throughout this episode. They are over at cigpodcast.com. Episode 76 link on the page will get you there. You'll find the summary, the links, and also ways to re- uh, review the episode on iTunes which is massively appreciated. If you can take a little bit of time to do that, it definitely helps. And also, if I sound weird on this podcast, I'm very sorry. I think I'm coming down with a cold or something, which is very scary to me because not only, as I record this, do I have to do the live stream with Simon and Jamie tomorrow night, but next week I'm going to Charlotte, North Carolina uh, to do a a workshop at FinCon where I'll be teaching people how to build a YouTube channel. So I have to stand up on stage and say things and hopefully I won't have like snot dribbling down my nose and have no voice. (laughs) So yes, thumbs up for a speedy recovery on that. Anyway, the first question comes from Alex, and he says, I watched your video on how I organize my notes, homework, and school files, and I have a question that's bugging me right now. I don't really understand how you could use the refillable notebook. What do you mean when you say you divide it with the flags? How does the notebook actually work in your workflow? I'm still a bit confused. And additionally, You did say that all of your notes are pretty much on Evernote. So in college, did you retype the handwritten paper notes on Evernote or take pictures of it for Evernote? Thanks for reading my question. So, all right, Alex and everyone else, let me just kind of give you a breakdown of my note-taking system as it has evolved over the years and what it is now. So for the most part, for most classes, I took my notes in class on my laptop in Evernote. So I wasn't writing them down And I mean, I've done a video on paper versus computer notes now, and um, I'm still not really in one specific camp on whether one is better than the other. I think paper definitely has some benefits, uh, but they don't always make perfect sense for what it is I want to do. So for most classes, I was taking outline style notes in Evernote, and I still have them all in Evernote. Um, What I would do is in Evernote, you can have notebooks, but you can also have notebook stacks. So I would have a stack called current classes, And the current semester's classes would be, the notebooks would be in that stack. And then the older classes were in a notebook stack called, fittingly, old classes. So everything is now in old classes, but I've got it all now. And every class would have a notebook and I can go back and see all the notes. So that was really useful for most classes. I'm especially thinking my MIS classes where there was just tons of details to look through. Like I'm looking at old MIS notes right now and I'm like, Material Requirement Planning is MRP acronym, and MES acronym is Manufacturing Execution Systems, and there's Process Control and Accounting, and the six essential AISs. I'm not even sure what those are, but these are the kind of notes that, that was the kind of class where there were so many details that I had to just type them. It just didn't really work to write them down. Um, but for like classes like Statistics, it was so much easier for me to write them down, so that's what I did, and I made sure for for Statistics in particular, That class, I was up in the front row every single day, and I took notes on everything. And I tried to make sure I got as many examples down as possible because not having examples later on when doing the homework was a recipe for disaster. So, And I need to get back to my notes for this podcast episode because I've been clicking through Evernote. It's a dumb idea. So let's talk about the refillable notebook. So I think uh, it's Mead. They make these things called, I believe they're called note binders. And when I was a sophomore, when I first discovered these, they weren't called note binders. They're a little bit more primitive. It was just a notebook cover with like these openable rings. They're like plastic rings that had like little teeth that fit together. There were three of them. So it was almost like a binder, except for it was a notebook, like flimsy notebook with a polyester cover. And I bought it because I didn't want to have a bunch of three subject notebooks shoved in my bag. I didn't even want to have a bunch of one subject notebooks. I wanted a very simple, you know, minimalist system. So I was like, It'd be great if I could have one notebook for everything, but then be able to put more paper into it as I need to. And the flags essentially allowed me to delineate where in the notebook new subjects started because there weren't dividers. It wasn't a three-subject notebook. It was one subject, but refillable. So I could put as much paper in there as I wanted. And I usually probably had like maybe half a ream of, of notebook paper. So it really wasn't that thick at all. But that way later on I could scan them into Evernote, which I wouldn't use a scanner to do. I would usually just take a picture with my phone and use the Evernote app to upload it and then like kind of shove it into the right notebook or not. You know, I wasn't perfect about it. But that was the ideal behind the system with the paper notes is I could take a picture with my phone, the Evernote app of the notebook, get it in there. And then as the notebook filled up and got stuffed, I could file the old notes away in my little footlocker thing. I have like a, a note box where you can kind of like put those hanging folders in. And I have a lot of stuff shoved in there. So definitely recommend getting one of those as well. So that was kind of the just the notebook system. Now I don't have the refillable notebook and uh, I actually haven't seen it for sale at Walmart or Target or anything for years. You can still buy them on Amazon. I'll link to it if you want to. But like, I think they're 20 bucks. So unless it's like really, really attractive to you to have a refillable notebook, um, you know, I wouldn't say, like, don't waste your money on that. Just get a regular notebook unless you are really, really attracted to that idea. Because nowadays, I just write everything in my notebook, my one notebook. I take notes in there. I write my to-do lists in there, my, my weekly to-do lists. And I write my lists of B-roll for videos in there. It's all in there. And I kind of just know where things are. Um, and there's just like this little Japanese, I think it's Japanese, it, it might not be Japanese, little note-taking hack where in the back, like the very last page of the notebook, you'll write, like a list of tags or categories and then uh, take like a thick marker and put a little black mark on the very edge of the page by each tag. And then on each page of your notebook, you can take that black marker and put a little dot on the line of the tag. So that way you can kind of organize your notes, even if you like completely mixed all the subjects up and just went like linearly by page like take your math notes on one page, turn the page, start doing history notes, blah, blah, blah. You could use this tagging system. I think it's a little disjointed, probably not really the best for revision, but you could do that if you wanted to boil everything down into one notebook. So Alex, hopefully that answers your question and let's move on to the next one. So the next one's fun. Um, Josh asks, what's the process you go through to make a podcast episode, including getting guests? So this is a cool question. So it kind of breaks down into two different processes. Um, being very similar, just one of them has the added step of getting a guest. So let's talk about the act of getting a guest first because if it's not a guest episode, it's a solo episode, or there's the occasional, I just pull a friend's arm until they get on the mic with me. <laughs> so for a guest, one of two things will happen. Um, for a while, my friend Laura, who is Andrew's wife, Andrew being my co-host for Listen Money Matters, she was reaching out to guests for me. So we had a shared board in Trello where we had one list called Topic Ideas and one list called Potential Guests, and Topic Ideas was like, okay, I want to do an episode on study abroad, I want to do an episode on procrastination, I want to do an episode on, you know, what have you, and then she, part of her job was to go out and find potential guests that could fit that role, so she would go do that, and then I would also suggest specific people that I wanted to interview, like I wanted to interview Gretchen Rubin when her book came out, so I put her on the list. I wanted to interview Cal Newport. He was on the list. A lot of people went on the list. And then she would reach out to them as kind of like my assistant sort of, which felt really weird to me. Like I almost, I don't know, I've been out of school for a while, but I still kind of feel studenty and it's very odd to have somebody acting as my assistant. But she did that and that was very helpful. And when she was doing that, I was like two months ahead on guests being scheduled to be on the show. So that was incredibly helpful. And as of late, she hasn't been doing it completely is my fault. I just haven't been giving her people to reach out to. I've been doing it myself. And I just have realized that I'm I'm not very good at delegation yet and I need to get better at it. But that is my own problem. So currently what happens is I will reach out to a guest myself. And actually I can I can kind of show you what I say to guests because that's interesting. I actually have a note in my podcast notebook in Evernote where I I like make a record of the emails I send to people, and then I actually note whether or not they accepted. So that way, I can kind of hone the way that I reach out to people. I try different things like being very brief in the email, being a little bit longer, linking to my podcast, or making a little bit more like reply for more detail, that kind of thing. So that way, it kind of like helps me get better at reaching out to busy people. So generally, my process now is. I reach out to somebody and I say, hey, you know, whoever their name is. And the first thing I'll say is I'm writing to see if you'd be interested in being a guest on the podcast. I think when you're trying to reach out to busy people, the first instinct is to say something like flattering, like to say, hey, I love your work so much. I've been a fan for so long. The problem with that is like people who are very busy or well-known or um, have a lot of success in their career, they do like getting good feedback. But the problem is as more good feedback comes in, this is one of the things that gray talks about in the cortex podcast the individual value of any one piece of positive feedback like the value of that kind of slowly approaches zero in the beginning the individual feedback is amazing but as it piles up the marginal value of each next piece it goes towards zero because they're just people just get so much email they just get so much email when they're well known or when they're successful so the best thing that you can do is immediately state your purpose for why you're writing i want you to be a guest in my podcast if they read that and they go, okay, I could see myself doing it, then they might read the rest of it. So then I'll give my reasoning. You know, I just, I read an article that you wrote at this publication. I thought this particular part of your research was very interesting. And this is why I think that my guest or my, my audience would be really interested to hear about it um, a little bit. And then like after that, I'll do a little bit about me. My name's Thomas Frank. I run College Info Geek. And sometimes I'll say like, here's what the podcast platform looks like. Like it's getting 10,000 downloads a week. So basically like saying, Hey, it's, it is worth your time to be on this show. Here's a link to the show if you want to check it out. And then if you're interested, let me know, and I can get you a link to my scheduling calendar, or we can just figure out when you have a time. So that is currently the way that I write my emails. I've only been tracking like five different people. Um, let's see here. Two of them, has, or three of them have accepted. One of them said he was a bit too busy and wasn't taking on new interviews. So, but he also said that he's working on a book. So I was like, okay, I'll just check back in with him when his new book's coming out because authors like to get their... The word out about their books, and they're usually more inclined to take interviews when they're promoting a book. So I made a note about that, and then I've got one that's pending. So we'll see what that person says. So that is basically the way that I get I reach out to a guest, and then if they say yes, I use an app called Calendly, and uh, it basically it basically gives them a calendar with open scheduling slots where they can pick a time to do a podcast. I used to just say, Hey, let's find a time. But I realized that it was creating a situation where I would have interviews all over the week at random times of the day. And it was very hard to schedule my video creation and other work around it. So when I went to podcast movement, which was a conference in uh, Dallas last year, I talked to some professional podcasters and they said, we basically only like schedule interviews on one day a week. Like we'll do them on Tuesdays. And I said, well, doesn't that like make it hard for the guests to actually find a time to talk with you? Do you ever find that you're like acting too important by only having your availability be on one day? And I said, no, you know, we're, we're honest that we just do it to save ourselves time and to make it consistent every week. And most guests are able to fit within that time slot. And, and, you know, the rare occasions when somebody can't, we really want them on the show. We'll make an exception and we'll work with them. But by providing that initial restricted choice, we are able to get most people within it. And then our schedules work better. So I tried that. It did work. And. It's been successful. So once I got the guest booked, I'll get them on Skype. I send them a prep packet, which tells them, hey, the show's conversational, it's fun, don't worry too much, uh, try to have like headphones on so your computer speaker doesn't like feed back into the mic and make an echo problem. Um, just a couple of things, like don't tap the desk or crazy things, because most people have never been on a podcast before, so those things are not obvious. And then we talk, I record it on my computer and also this little digital recorder as a backup, which I just purchased this thing. Um, expressly for the purpose of having a backup recording method when I interviewed Secretary Duncan because I had nightmares about my computer crashing like after the interview ended, right before I saved the file and just losing it. Like that was a horrible nightmare. So I made sure I had uh, two different methods of recording and now it's just here. I can plug it into my computer and record backups whenever I'm recording. So it's kind of just some peace of mind. And I record with Adobe Audition, which is part of the Creative Suite. So basically the setup is this mic is going into the mixing board, mixing board goes to the sound card, and then Audition just knows to listen to the sound card. So when I'm with a guest, I actually have to pan the uh, audio from my mic to the left ear, and then the audio from the guest to the right ear, so that way in Audition there's like a stereo track with two voices in each ear, that way when I go to post-process, I can split that right and left side, each of them can go into their own mono files, and mono is just basically like both ears are the same. And that way I can apply different effects to each file because my mic is different than their mic. They're usually recording on like a laptop mic or those those iPhone headphones with a mic in them. And I'm recording on this professional mic. So they need different effects than I need. And by splitting them, I can make the volume more consistent. I can make them sound as best as they possibly can without affecting my audio and vice versa. So then I'll export that. And let's see here. Export, I have a big checklist of things to do, but essentially you export it and then I'll bring it into iTunes where I can give it all the tags. It gets it's like artist, and album, a description, the title. Then I'll upload that to my podcast host, which I use a host called Simplecast. They are, for one, run by a couple of guys that I know personally. But two, as I've found... They are the cheapest option out there for a podcast that gets a lot of downloads because other ones tend to charge by the bandwidth you use and they just charge a flat monthly fee per show and you have unlimited bandwidth. They probably can do it because they're a pretty small platform. Don't have like too many people on there choking their their resources, but I'm completely happy with them. And once I've got that in there, then I just create the blog post. I will plug it right into the blog post and then College Info Geeks got some plugins that will automatically send the episode to iTunes and Stitcher and all the other apps. So that is the process of getting a podcast episode up with the guest things. Um, If it's not a guest, I just turn on audition and start recording without panning the audio. And that's really the only difference. So that's it. Hopefully that answers your question, Josh. And the third question comes from uh, Oscar. And she said, I want to begin by saying I'm a huge fan of your work. So thank you, Oscar. And uh, let's see here. The question I'm a student in the UK about to embark on a gap year, and I feel both excited and nervous, more the latter. Unlike a lot of people, my gap year is to study A-level mathematics to get into university next year rather than to travel. So I've been looking everywhere for some sort of advice or direction for people who are doing this sort of thing, but I haven't had any luck as most gap year advice is tailored towards traveling. I have no idea how to plan and structure the entire year myself, and as September draws near, I'm getting more and more anxious as I don't want to waste any time. I need to dedicate my enough time to my studies, six math modules and potentially one biology module, but I also need to get a job for the first few months as well as pick up some old hobbies, and uh, I want to ensure them in, at the gym three to four times a week as well. Every time I sit down to carve out a large plan, I freeze, and after an hour of staring at a blank screen, I end up going for a run. I'm literally running away from my problems. I'm wondering what would you do to go about such a task and if you have any advice as to how I should allocate my time. So this is a great question. This is essentially... Like Oscar what you're essentially trying to do is you're essentially trying to become like a self-employed person right out of school and your your job that you're creating for yourself is essentially to become a student but you are like your sole manager boss and motivating I guess motivating factor right so this is tough because I think it takes time and practice to be able to motivate yourself for an entire day. It's not easy. Um, it's essentially what I do, except for I've created accountability systems where I tell you know an audience of people external from my own brain that, hey, I'm going to have a video out every Thursday. I'm going to have a podcast out every Monday. I'm going to do these things. So this is really a problem of both organization, but also motivation, commitment devices, and just accountability. Now, you need to look at each of the things you want to do and try to figure out what you can do to create external systems to make yourself accountable to do these things. Otherwise, it's going to be very hard to motivate yourself to do them. There's a concept I want to talk about in a later video or potentially a podcast episode called decision fatigue. And decision fatigue is essentially this concept that the more decisions you have to make throughout a day, the more exhausted your brain gets and the harder it is to make further decisions or to avoid going down the the default habitual path, which is usually laziness, right? So if you can eliminate those decisions by setting up habits and routines, by having like a specific study location that you're gonna go to every single day to do these things, you're gonna make it easier on yourself to make decisions later on in the day. So for me, I, I would probably pick the hardest thing and do that first thing in the morning. I think... I would pick going to the gym if I had the option. I don't because my girlfriend works full-time, so we end up going after she's done working. But if I had the option to work out and it wasn't like just me and another person, it was just me, I would go immediately because going to the gym is tough for me. I'll go skate all day, but I don't really like to lift. And then I would go to my location to do work. And I do this with my own work. If I need to do emails, which I hate... Or if I need to write scripts, which is tough in research, then I will go to a coffee shop or to a co-working facility, and I'll do a lot of that there, because doing it at home is generally pretty hard for me. Whereas filming and editing, that stuff is usually done close enough to my deadline that there is just this ridiculous motivation that I have to get the video done, filmed, edited, and up on YouTube within like the next couple of days, so I can do that from home, which is nice because I have to do it from home. So look at commitment devices you can use. I like Beeminder. Um, not a lot of people like the whole like threat of financial loss, but I think it motivates me. Maybe you can get a study buddy who's also doing something like that. Maybe you could find people who are actually at university that you could go study with, and you can just kind of say, hey, you know, I'm doing a self-study year, but uh, I need people who are in academic programs who have like a kind of similar schedule to what I'm trying to build for myself, and I would like to hang out and study with you guys. So hopefully that answers your question, provides some insight, and um, good luck with your gap year. Because, I mean, yeah, a lot of people do travel in their gap years, and what you're trying to do is a little bit different. Yeah, I guess the one other thing is is definitely try to build good, long-lasting habits. Because trying to motivate yourself to make a decision on each one of these things every day is going to be hard. And I love Habitica for building habits. You can also check out coach.me. That's useful. If you even want to, you can pay a coach to check in with you and help guide you through a habit-building program. And I'll have both those in the show notes. So question number four uh, says, hello, I emailed you. This is from uh, Kira. I emailed you a few days ago. I'm currently in a physics class and I'm having trouble taking notes in this class as well. Every bit in, or every bit in my stat class. I was wondering if you could help me with either of these in any way. Uh, OK, so stats, notes and physics notes. The number one principle with any kind of like science or um, any kind of subject where there is like a definite answer. You know, English doesn't really count here. Um, but with like physics and statistics, there is an answer, a concrete, hundred percent right answer to the problems that you're going to be facing. What I would, what I always did with my notes in these kind of classes is I always wanted to get down like the concepts that were presented in class, but also I wanted to get down as many examples as I could. So anytime the professor goes through an example, I would try to verbatim write down the steps the professor went through, show how the operations were carried out. And put in any little asides that can clear up any potential confusion that I have later. And this takes practice, but you'll realize that things that seem crystal clear in class, the processes that the professor's going through in an example, that will fade over time when you get home and you're doing homework or you're revising later on. It's going to be harder to go through those problems, those practice problems. But if you have the examples written down in your notes, you can go back and say, oh yeah, I can see now, like this is how this operation is carried out. This is why. You can also draw little arrows and say, this is an example of concept X. You know, I can, this is an example right here. And maybe even like right down the page in the book, this is where the the concept is explained in detail in the book. And I have an example of it right here. So make sure you're doing that. I also want to talk about something. This will probably be part of a subject or part of a video but I was listening to the Cortex podcast again and uh, c Gray used to be a teacher. And what he told his students for studying for uh, tests in classes like physics and stat is one of the best ways you can study is to get your hands on old exams or practice exams where you have something that is close in form to what you're actually going to be tested on. And also if you can get your hands on an answer key you now have something that can actually show you you know, the proof that your answer is right or wrong. So once you have these two pieces of material, the best way to study is to simply go through that old exam as many times as it takes until you are able to get a perfect score on it. And he says the reason that you wanna do this and go through it over and over again until you get a perfect score isn't necessarily to get better at the tough concepts. That's, that is one benefit, but the real benefit at least in his mind, is that the easier things, you are drilling them into your brain so well that they become second nature. And that way, when you're in the test, these littler things that are easier for you, they contribute absolutely nothing to the cognitive load that you're dealing with during the test. So the harder things can take up all of your cognitive abilities, and the easier things are just like 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 breathing, basically. You just do them immediately, and they're out of your head. So hopefully that answers the question and helps any of you guys in stat and uh, physics classes. Math classes are very similar, and I'm hoping that after I get done with the speed reading series on my channel, I'm gonna. the next video I want to do is the math video. It's one of those videos where there's just so much information, and there's so much I want to say that it's hard for me to start, but I think if I say, okay, after I finish the third speed reading video, I'm going to make that video. If there's a deadline, I'll do it. So look out for the math video within the next few weeks, and hopefully that'll help as well. So last question, I think this is from a guy named Jack. He said, I just saw one of your videos about burnout, and I was thinking of what can help me relax after studying. I don't like gaming, and I always try to avoid low energy relaxation. What can I do to relax in between chunks of study? What is the best way to rest for like 10 minutes and unwind a little bit to refocus for the next chunk of studying? So this is a good question. I like gaming myself. So I often will go play a few rounds of Splatoon while I'm trying to relax. But um, lately, what I've been doing is I've actually been taking a break to go to the skate park, which is like a mile from my house. And I'll skate for like 20 minutes. And I think that anything you can do that involves physical exercise and going outside is probably one of the best things you can do to relax because physical exercise has been proven to improve your cognitive capabilities. Go outside, take a walk. Um, maybe have like a sport that you do. Um, I know I signed up for like a bowling class and a weightlifting class when I was in my senior year. And it was just like a 45 minute fun class that kind of broke up my day. So find something like that, or maybe go hang out with a friend. You know, you can like go watch YouTube or be on Facebook for a little while. I think those can kind of take your mind off of studying, but they're not really providing any value. So maybe you can find some little hobbies or outdoor activities that provide value while also taking your mind off your studying to give you a little bit of a break. So hopefully you found the answers to these questions useful, guys, and um, I'm gonna email the people who sent me these questions the link to this episode so they can see it. If you have questions of your own, I'm gonna be working on getting a more efficient system for having people send me questions because email is tough, but how about this? If you have a question that you want me to answer on this show, go to the show notes episode or the show notes for this episode on the blog. So CIGpodcast.com, find the episode 76 link and the comments section. If you have a question, post it there and I will try to answer it in the next Q&A session. Um, there's also always comments on the YouTube channel. There's always all, all emails as much as I don't like emails. So I'll try to aggregate the best ones and use them to make the next episode. So thanks for listening to this one. You can check out the show notes, as I said, for anything I mentioned that I wanted to link to and also to review the show. And that's all I've got. So I'll see you in next week's episode, which will be the replay of the live stream I did with Simon and Jamie. And that's it. So stay cute. See you next week.